I am excited about what God will do for us in these next few moments together. One of the things that I have observed is that it is always somebody's day. It's always somebody's day for a God encounter. It is, was a blind man's day to receive his sight. It was a little boy's day to discover the potential of what he had in his hand to feed a multitude. It was a leper's day to discover that God was more than willing to heal him. I don't know what you brought in the room with you today. What kind of questions, what kind of needs, what kind of disappointments. But one of the things we learn from the Old Testament, God's name is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and provides. No matter how desperate your problem is this morning, it didn't catch him off guard. He is the God who is more than enough for whatever you're facing today. I want to uh, give a special word of appreciation to Dr. Edie Lombardo. Uh, she and her husband, Dr. Vic, the elder, Dr. Vic Sr., have been my friends since the Dead Sea was only sick. <laughs> we were together at a Christian college at uh, in Springfield, Missouri, and through Edie's husband, Vic, I learned a few things. Number one, I learned that you could be sarcastic and have a dynamic Christian life. <laughs> I learned that you could be a success, that you could be an entrepreneur, and that you could have a wonderful heart altogether. But I especially appreciated what in Vic was the 10th gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of sarcasm. And it has just been a wonderful friendship through the years. And, uh, and to see Victor, uh, who was uh, just a small boy when we first moved to Springfield, and to see the way that God has used his life in these intervening years. The only thing that bothers me about seeing Victor is that when I look at him, it, I realize how really old I am. Rocky and Bullwinkle has always been one of my favorite cartoons. Maybe it was uh, Mr. Peabody's trips into the historical past in his Wayback Machine. Or perhaps because I was a bit of a runt, it may have been the fact that our hero was a little guy who constantly overcame overwhelming odds. I also loved Boris and Natasha the two hopelessly incompetent Russian spies whose life mission was to kill moose and squirrel. But one of my favorite parts of the show was the way the script writers would uh, play on words to make a point. Bullwinkle, for example, played his college football for one of the world's worst football teams, good old Wasamata U, which had not scored a touchdown in more than 22 seasons. Now, when you look at the life of Moses, here's a guy who spent more than half of his life enrolled in the spiritual equivalent of Wasamata U. You might even call it Sinai University. What was that about? 
You know, at church we talk about God's calling on people's lives. We talk about vision, purpose, destiny. But I think once the excitement of a Sunday morning service ends, people go home and they say, okay, how do I get there from here? What's the path? What steps do I need to take? What do I need to be doing? And this is where I find the lives of biblical characters so helpful, as well as the lives of people God has used throughout history. And I think if we can understand how they navigated the ups and downs of life, it helps us. The Apostle Paul called their lives examples to help us navigate life better. But when you look at the life of Moses, the first thing that strikes you is that God gave him a big vision. Moses had a vision to free his people from slavery. As a child, his mother told him that their people had not always been slaves, which was a newsflash because they had been slaves for 400 years. They were poor and they had always been poor and they were always going to be poor. They had never breathed free air a day in their lives, and they did not know anybody who had. But Moses' mother told him about a God who spoke to their ancestor, Abraham, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go to the promised land. One of the old Puritan preachers paraphrased the book of Hebrews and said, Abraham went out not knowing whithersoever he went, but he knew with whom he went. That God made a promise to Abraham, entered into a contract, a binding agreement. The Old Testament calls it a covenant to bring him into the promised land and to give him an heir who arrived when he was 100 years old. You may be here this morning feeling like your best days are behind you. But uh, if you're not yet 100, you could still have a lot of gas left in the tank this morning. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm sure he's talking about you. <laughs> well, Jochebed told, them, told Moses how God brought them to Egypt, how God used Joseph to save a nation. She told him how Pharaoh came to the throne, a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, an evil man who reduced the Hebrews to slaves. She told Moses of that Pharaoh's plan to wipe out the Hebrews by killing every newborn son. And then she told Moses of how God miraculously spared his life when the Pharaoh's daughter picked him out of the river from a tiny little basket. That may not seem like much of a miracle to you, but if you've ever been to Egypt and you know how many crocodiles are in the Nile, and they did not have saved crocodiles in the Nile, they were all wired exactly the same way, and they were all looking for hors d'oeuvres that morning. So it was indeed a miracle. Well, as Moses' mother shared those stories, a vision grew in the heart of that young boy of a different future. Somehow he knew that liberation would come. It was a beautiful and inspiring vision. He could see, and any of you have had a vision for your life, for your business, for your family, know exactly what I'm talking about. He could see millions of Israelites stepping into the bright light 
of freedom and making their way across the Sinai to the promised land. He could see them entering the land of milk and honey. He could see them building homes. He could see them cultivating vineyards and farms. Now that vision wasn't just big, it was impossible. And let me just say something this morning. If the vision that you have of your life is something you can do by yourself, it might be a good idea. It's just not a God idea. I'd like to suggest something to you this morning that might seem a little bit radical. A God idea requires, and wait for it, God. The Israelites, thank you. I never let an underwhelming response to a laugh line deter me in the least. I can keep churning bad jokes. <laughs> the Israelites were slaves of the most powerful king in the world. And there had never been a successful slave revolt anywhere. God has a vision for everybody's life. Would you say that with me this morning? God. God. Now, how many of you know if God's not in the equation... It's just a good idea. But say that with me again. God has a vision for everybody's life. That vision is so big that you are bound to fail unless God helps you. Most people have a sense of vision by the time they're eight years old. Surveys show that most doctors and lawyers know what they want to be and what they want to do by the time they reach junior high school. So it's not just that God has a vision for everybody's life, it's that God has a vision for your life. So I want us to personalize that together. Say it with me again, God has a vision for my life. Now, Moses got the idea right, but his timing and his methods were terrible. What did Moses do? Well, when he turned 40, he went out and killed an Egyptian. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 tell us, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. Now, I highly doubt that Moses got up one morning and decided to go out and start killing Egyptians. And even if he had, it would have taken a couple of lifetimes to knock off everybody. What happened is that Moses saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Israelites, and he just lost it. The rage boiled up inside of him like a volcano, so he killed the man. Well, it's impossible to know what Moses was thinking. Moses' reaction reminds me a lot of the words of that great country song, I know what I was feeling, but what was I thinking? <laughs> now, maybe he thought the Israelites would rally to him. Maybe he had delusions of grandeur and he saw himself leading a great slave revolt against Israel's taskmasters. Or maybe he just was enough like the rest of the human race that he just got ticked off. But no matter what, the incident demonstrates that Moses was not ready 
to shoulder the burden of leading three million people to freedom and building a nation out of a ragtag collection of slaves. Enter God's adult education program, otherwise known as Old Sinai U. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, I want you to notice something about Old Sinai U. It was not your typical four-year program of study. Moses spent 10 years as a freshman. It sounds like some of our kids. <laughs> My son looked at me once after his first semester at Mizzou. He said, Dad, I could do this forever. I said, you're welcome to do it as long as you like. Understand that the gravy train ends about four years from now. But he spent 10 years as a freshman, 10 years as a sophomore, 10 years as a junior, and 10 years as a senior. It took 40 years for Moses to become an overnight success. <laughs> and there were no spring breaks. No Lauderdale. No Naples. No summer vacations. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, another generation lived and died in slavery. What was God thinking? Didn't God realize the urgency of the situation? Didn't he know that Israel couldn't wait? Actually, God knew all of that. But apparently, did nothing. So here's the question. It's not just a question that I think Moses may have asked. I think it's probably every one of us ask at some time or another in our Christian walk. Why did God give a man a vision and then send him to a desert? Now, we could spend a lot of time speculating on why God does the things he does. But this is the way God works. He did the same thing with the Apostle Paul. He told Paul that he would be God's special representative to the Gentiles. He said, you will be a light to the Gentiles to tell them about Jesus. And then he sent Paul to the desert for three years. The father did the same thing with his son. After God anointed him for ministry, Mark 1.12 says, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, I want to give you a concept this morning. It's a fair bet that if the only perfect man in history had to pull time in the desert, that might be true of the rest of us. So here's what we know. Before anyone's vision is ready to be implemented, they may not go to an actual desert but they will go through a time that seems like a virtual reality desert. And usually it will seem like a waste of time. So what's the deal with the desert? Well, first of all, I think there's a very practical reason why God sent Moses to the desert. What was God preparing Moses to do? To lead three million people through a desert. 
I have read scores of pages of commentary on this passage of Scripture. And they adduce all kinds of spiritual, theological, and historical reasons for the desert. And most of them miss the obvious. God took him to the place he was going to bring him back to. In order to get three million grumpy, gossiping Israelites through the desert. It was going to take somebody who knew that desert. And nothing in his earlier life had prepared him for that as the adopted son of a princess. He was pampered. He was treasured. And he was soft. That young man lived in a world where he could lose his temper most of the time with very few consequences. It wouldn't do for the leader of God's people. God's intensely practical. Sometimes we like to think that the Christian life and ministry is all spiritual. But while ministry may be essentially spiritual, it is not exclusively spiritual. Ministry is intensely practical. Your prep time will be tied very directly to what God wants you to do and where he wants you to do it. It's easy to forget, but critical to remember. Your preparation is for where you're going. God's plan in your life is a lot like running successful political campaigns. Really good political campaigns are about the future, not the past. I've always marveled at Ronald Reagan for many, many reasons. First of all, his wonderful humility, his sense of humor. Ronald Reagan was running a course against Jimmy Carter, and we were in the midst of a recession. The average person really doesn't understand that sort of thing very well. Reagan said, well, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. And a depression is when you lose yours. <laughs> and recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. <laughs> it was also Ronald Reagan as governor of California described the free speech movement at that bastion of American liberalism in Berkeley. And he described a hippie as a Jack who looks like a Jill and smells like a John. <laughs> now, there's a second reason why God put Moses through Sinai U. The desert was the place where God matured the man and matured the vision. Clearly, the young man whose first response to oppression was killing an Egyptian was not ready for leadership. He was too brash, too impatient, too subject to his own violent impulses. He was in no position to lead a body of slaves even more undisciplined than he was. Now, let me say it this way. God will first do in you what he will do through you. 
I want to say that one again. He will first do in you what he will later do through you. And it took time to work the temper out of that young man. Just as important to the maturing of the man was the maturing of the vision. The people weren't ready for Moses. They had proved that when he tried to lead them earlier. You can't be a leader if no one is following you. Which reminds me of one of my favorite Chinese proverbs. He who thinks he leads with no one following only takes a walk. The people had to get to the point of desperation where they recognize Moses' leadership and they weren't there. Equally important, the time wasn't right. Scripture tells us that the wickedness of the Canaanites was not yet full. See, the fulfillment of God's vision in your life, the fulfillment of God's calling, the fulfillment of God's purpose is not just about you. It's about his purposes and the ends of history. And there has to be a synergy. There has to be a convergence of what's happening in the heavenly court of God and what is happening on the earth and what is happening in God's servant. It's all absolutely true of us. Before God can move us into the vision he has for us, a lot of things have to happen in us and in the world we have been called to impact. There is a process that has to take place. I've certainly found that to be true in my own life. God called me to preach when I was 15. Doors began almost immediately to open for me to sing and preach. And as I sought the Lord, God, I began to impress some things on my heart about my direction. And in my youthful enthusiasm, I became absolutely convinced I was called to be the next Billy Graham. So I watched every Billy Graham crusade I could. And I learned to hold my Bible the way that Billy Graham held his. And I learned to emphatically say, my Bible says. And then when I would give the altar call, I would step out to the side of the pulpit. And I would say, as the choir sings, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Only one problem in the churches that I preached in, there weren't any choirs. <laughs> there weren't any buses waiting in the parking lot. And I was at least a foot too short to make a Billy Graham imita uh, imitation work. <laughs> Even with all that, the Lord privileged me to see a lot in those early years and to come into contact with some great men and women of God. I was a Youth for Christ preacher boy. And so I met many of the young men who had been discipled by Billy Graham and by Tory Johnson. I will never forget Jay Kessler, who became the president of Taylor University, looking at me one day after a contest. And I said, how did I do, Jay? He said, well, we have all decided your sense of humor is too weird for you to be a pastor. <laughs> Probably the only place for you is a college classroom or YFC. They were wonderful days. But there were also years of wilderness wandering. Some of the impressions I had, some of the dreams I had, were delayed so long 
that I forgot about them. It was discouraging. It often felt like I was going in circles. I can tell you now that what I wouldn't have admitted then, there were times when I wanted to die, especially when I took my first church in Oak Hill, West Virginia, which I became convinced shortly had been misspelled. It should never have been spelled H-I-L-L, but should have been spelled a bit differently. And I was absolutely shocked one Sunday night when I wanted to talk about the inductive method of Bible study in the book of Philippians. And I rhetorically looked at the congregation and I said, do you understand what I'm saying? And one dear old lady who was born during the mine wars of the 1915, 1925 era decided to answer me. She said, preacher, I ain't understood a thing you said since you got to town. Talk about a way to puncture the youthful idealism and dreams of a young man. But you know what? I can look back now, and with the perspective of time, I can say that I was a pretty headstrong young man. I was wild and undisciplined. I once threatened to kill a dean at Southeastern University. I was called in for that. John Wayne had just made Rooster Cogburn famous in two films, and I thought, when I got called on the carpet, I would borrow from the script. And the dean asked me about, actually the president of the college, asked me about threatening to kill a dean. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. President, I never threatened to kill anybody that didn't need killing. <laughs> that bought a suspension. It took time. It took lots of time. My wife often says, you have ruined some great sermons with some really funny stories. <laughs> but you know what? I can't imagine what I've done the last 40 years without the desert. I can't imagine working in places like the former Soviet Union, where we still had bread lines when I first got there when it was tough and it was difficult and there was very little outside support for what we were doing. Ukraine was a desert when I got there. If I hadn't lived in the desert, I could never have stood up under it. But I gained some lessons in that wilderness. I understand how God makes a man or a woman. I understand something about the discouragements and the disappointment and the broken dreams of life. Which isn't to say that it was all negative. God built a faith into me that only comes through time and testing. I learned that God's calling is God's enabling. If it's God's vision, then it's his job to make the provision. I learned about God's ability to take the most desperate life and redeem it. I learned about his provision. And I owe every bit of it to the desert. One thing we can certainly say after looking at Moses is that the bigger the job, the bigger the desert. We cannot imagine the pressures that Moses had to face as he led the children of Israel. They had no concept of responsibility. They had a survival mentality that was just about getting through today. It was his job to forge that mob of ex-slaves into a nation and lead them into a promised land. Only a person hardened in the furnace 
could stand it. And that never changes. You can see it throughout history with the great heroes of faith, people like Martin Luther and John Wesley. Luther spent years in the desert of depression as he sought to justify himself in God's sight. Wesley spent 13 years trying to find the assurance of salvation. He tried good works. He took the vow of poverty. He devoted himself to spiritual disciplines. In perhaps his most difficult and outrageous move, he became a missionary to Georgia and has found what Southeastern Conference football fans absolutely know, redemption in the state of Georgia, are two words that do not belong in the same sentence. That was actually a laugh line. There must be a random Georgia fan here. We wish you the worst. <laughs> Wesley read everything he could about the spiritual life. When Wesley's encounter with the Holy Spirit incurred, there was a depth to the man that gave him the capacity to lead a global movement. I often think about Winston Churchill, who spent 25 years in a wilderness of failure and rejection. As a young man, Churchill was a bit of a prodigy. His exploits on the northwest frontier of India and in the Boer War made him world famous before he was 30. One of the youngest cabinet ministers in British history at the age of 33, he seemed destined for greatness. If you didn't believe it, ask Churchill. <laughs> he became the Lord of the Admiralty, basically Secretary of the Navy at age 40. But an absolutely boneheaded campaign in Gallipoli brought about his exile from government and a series of ups and downs that lasted for the next 25 years. He became the butt of jokes. He drank too much. But in the desert, he developed a grit and a resilience that enabled him to stand up against the Nazi aggression when all seemed to be lost and members of his own party wanted to negotiate peace with Hitler. Only that mean little man stood between Adolf Hitler and victory. It was enough. Every American knows the story of Franklin Roosevelt, the cousin of one of our most popular presidents. Roosevelt was a rising star in national politics who became assistant secretary of the Navy in his 30s and ran for VP at 38. He became an invalid at the age of 39 when he was struck with polio. This vibrant, dynamic young man had to watch as his once powerful legs withered before his eyes. He went into a terrible depression. He spent more than a year in Key West. He didn't see his wife. He didn't see his children. He didn't see any of his political associates. He was a destroyed person. He wanted to die. But in the desert, young Franklin Roosevelt was transformed. He developed a compassion for the broken and for the downtrodden. It's rare in human beings, much less in presidents. And like Churchill, he developed an iron determination. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit with John Voigt, who played Roosevelt in the movie Pearl Harbor, which was actually a romantic story where the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor for a few minutes, but that's another side to the story. 
But when I sat down with Mr. Voigt, I said, John, of all the people I have ever seen play Franklin Roosevelt, I thought you got him the best. And he said, why? I said, because you got the sheer grit and determination of the man. And that wonderful actor looked at me and his eyes softened and he said, that's what I was going for. When the nation turned to Roosevelt in the midst of the Great Depression, he was ready. And so complete was his own transformation that as he led the country through the Depression, journalists began to refer to this invalid as Dr. New Deal, the very symbol of health, optimism, and vitality. The only thing about Roosevelt that didn't work was his legs. Well, this is all wonderfully instructive and perhaps even mildly humorous. But since we're talking about God's university, perhaps a little homework is in order this morning. I'd like to ask you to write down three questions for reflection today and maybe even in your devotional time through the week. The first question is the big one. What has God called me to do with my life? You know, if you get clear on that, the rest of it's pretty much details. Secondly, what gifts has God given me? The Apostle Paul wrote the Romans and he said, having then gifts. Every believer is the recipient of endowments by the Holy Spirit that come at conversion. Gifts of God's grace that can operate anytime, anywhere that we are called upon to be the presence of God in this world. Some of those gifts are natural. Some of those gifts are spiritual. But it is worthwhile to do an inventory on what God gifted you to do. And then finally, what are my gaps? Because if I'm ever going to come out of the wilderness, God and I are going to have to get serious about the things that got me there in the first place. And that will keep me there. What we do learn from the children of Israel is that if you don't let God teach you, he will learn you. And they took a number of laps around Sinai. Not just once, but 38 times. My father was a bit of a backport philosopher, and he used to say there is nothing to be learned in the second kick of a mule. So I would like to suggest to you this morning, it would be worthwhile for you and God to have a conversation about the gaps. Some of us find that pretty difficult, but if think about it this way. Most people live in a doom loop. They'll change jobs, they'll change partners, they'll change locations. Six months, 12 months, 18 months, everything goes pretty well. And then for some reason, they come right back where they were. Psychologists call that a doom loop. Ask yourself a question whether there is a doom loop in your life. Relationally, professionally, spiritually. Uh, some of you are in a desert today. If you've never been there, here's the good news. This is the reward for coming to a nine o'clock service. If you're not there yet, you will be. And the desert will cause you to doubt everything you've ever believed. 
But understand this. God has appointed your desert. And if you will let him, it will not only be the place of maturing and a place of testing, it will become a place of revelation and transformation. And with that, I'd like to ask you to stand with me for just a moment. And I'd like us to have a prayer together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for all the saints gathered at the gathering. Lord, we gather in your presence. We gather around your word, which alone is able to make us wise to salvation. It truly is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us enough that we wouldn't have to stumble through life in confusion, but we could walk through life with a clear sense of identity, of knowing who we are, of who we are in you, of what you've called us to do. And Lord, we can have an assurance that we will be better at the end than we were at the beginning. Father, I thank you for people who come to church in the middle of the summer when the pastor's gone and we're not taking roll. Those are special folks. They're here because they want to be here. And Father, I pray grace on every man and every woman, every young person in this service this morning. The grace of the Holy Spirit, your enduring presence. I pray for each and every one, especially those in the desert this morning, the desert of a health crisis. Lord, the person who has received horrible news regarding a chronic or a terminal illness, a person whose hold on hope has become loose today, Lord, cause them to know that even in that desert, you are there. Even in that desert, there is a bush where you manifest yourself. A bush that doesn't just burn, but a bush where there comes a message for them on this day. Lord, we open our hearts to you. Some of us have a bit of trouble doing that, depending on some of our life experiences. Some of us have had trust issues. Some of us have spent a lot of time being self-sufficient. But Lord, we come to you today as children. And you said, blessed are the little children because such is the kingdom of God. Lord, give us the wonder. Give us the humility. Give us the openness of children today. To receive your word. Which brings life to our bones. In the mighty an all-sufficient name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.